when looking at chapter 2, we said something of the way in which God chose the belly of this great fish to be the classroom uh, in which uh, Jonah came to a place of genuine uh, repentance. And I want to read in just from verse 10 of chapter 2 and all of 3. Uh, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. It's a remarkable uh, passage. Uh, I wonder as we approach it if I can uh, ask you to think of uh, how you may or may not have made use of a camera lens uh, which has uh, different fields of interest coming into focus as you turn uh, the lens. Uh, And the photographer's task is to sort out what subject he wants to capture. The distant hills or perhaps the cow's head in the foreground poking through uh, a hedge. Well, As we read through the book of Jonah, there are many focal planes that present themselves. Uh, Some people, as they turn their lens, see only the giant fish, uh, while others, uh, their uh, attention dwells upon the disobedient prophet who said no to God. But I want to suggest to you uh, this evening that the main focus of the book is somewhat different. The main focus of this whole book is God's self-disclosure of his grace 
and his mercy, first towards Jonah and then towards those uh, who were uh, his congregation, if you like, in uh, Nineveh. The focal plane of chapter 3 fixes upon the greatest spiritual awakening, I would suggest, recorded in all of Scripture. And significantly, this awakening, this revival, takes place in the midst, not of God's covenant people, the Jews, but in the midst of the idolatrous and heathen wicked city of Nineveh, Israel's enemy, the Assyrians that David read of earlier. Uh, It's the same people uh, several years down the line. And I want us uh, this evening to approach this remarkable event, this great awakening, by looking at three things. First of all, there is a prepared preacher. Secondly, there is a clear communication. And thirdly, there is a quite remarkable uh, response. Prepared preacher. And I think it's worth asking, what would have happened if Jonah had gone to Nineveh when God first told him to do so in chapter 1? Perhaps very little. Jonah was ill-equipped to be the evangelist to the Ninevites. He may have taken the right message, but the messenger himself was all wrong. He had no love for Nineveh. And when the messenger is wrong, little of God is communicated. And so preparing the message, I would suggest, is as important, preparing the messenger rather, is as important as preparing the message. When Jonah was vomited up onto dry land, he stepped out of a dark tomb into newness of life. He was a transformed man. And while his wrinkled appearance may have highlighted the deficiencies of the fish beauty salon he had spent three days in, some think it would have lent Uh, wait to his message. Just look at him. Uh, He must have done time in the fish's stomach. But it's not the external appearance, but his internal transformation that should focus our attention. Jonah walked out of that tomb of death into newness of life. It's interesting when Jesus told the Jews that the only sign he was going to give them was the sign of Jonah. He was using the language of death and resurrection. This life out of death principle is foundational to fruitful service. In his last public utterance, before his arrest, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. 
but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Paul describes this life out of death principle, writing to the Corinthians, death works in me that life might work in you. Calvin says, this indicates that both an inward and an outward conformity to Christ's death is to be found in the servant of Christ. A dying to self on the one hand and the outward experience of suffering for Christ. Our lives are to reflect the death of Christ in such a way that men and women are somehow reminded of Calvary. This is the test of gospel communication. The truth is like a door through which God reaches out his hand to touch the lives of those he longs to save. Can we expect any real measure of fruitfulness in our gospel proclamation where there is no evidence of the mark of the cross upon our lives? George Muller, famous 19th century Christian, when asked what was the secret of his uh, remarkably fruitful ministry, replied in six words, There was a day George Muller died. There was a day George Muller died. And Muller was acknowledging this death and resurrection principle. Well, I want to suggest to you that in the belly of the great fish, there was a day when Jonah died. Jonah's preparation involved more than his death to pride and prejudice and selfish ambition. His freshly awakened conscience recognized judgment to be a terrible thing. God's judgment for Jonah was no longer a doctrine that he's lifted out of a theological textbook. It's a reality that had become a part, a significant part of his own experience. And that reality ought to be a great motivator for the preacher. What did Paul write? Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. This is one of my motivators, uh, says Paul. The reality of God's judgment injects a tremendous sense of urgency into preaching. It's for this reason that uh, General Booth of the Salvation Army said he wished it were possible for his officers to spend just 24 hours in hell. Well, Jonah knew that it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a holy God. And I suspect that his preaching reflected something of that. 
Jonah's preaching would also have been marked by a lively sense of God's grace. If Jonah had encountered only the strict demands of justice, he would have been no more than a a skeleton rattling about in a mobile grave in the Mediterranean. But God had been gracious to him. And surely it's only the man who has tasted the grace of God who can adequately preach it. Spurgeon writes, You cannot preach conviction of sin unless you have suffered it. You cannot preach repentance unless you have practiced it. You cannot preach faith unless you have exercised it. True preaching is artesian. It wells up from the great depths of the soul. If Christ has not made a well within us, there will be no outflow from us. Jonah had been fashioned by God into an artesian preacher. The the Ninevites benefited from the well of God's grace that had been fashioned in Jonah. Secondly, we see in these verses a a clear communication. Uh, The awakening in Nineveh was marked by that. Jonah was told by God in 3 verse 1, Speak the message I give you. It wasn't a palatable message. It was a message of disaster. Verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned, destroyed. And behind this lies the righteous punishment of sin. And implicit in that too is a message of repentance. This is an unpopular message to preach repentance judgment but it was the message that Jonah preached many today want to reshape the teaching of scripture and instead of making the message of God clear they end up obscuring it and misrepresenting the character of God in the process I think Tozer's analysis here is valid. He writes, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all unpleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. Many think that by dumbing down any idea of judgment, they are benefiting their hearers. But in fact, they are doing them unimaginable harm worse than any drug dealer is the opiate they are selling. Of course, the manner 
in which the sobering truth is communicated is all important. Many of you will know that in the course of conversation, Boner asked his friend McShane uh, one Monday, what were you preaching on yesterday? And McShane replied on the doctrine of hell. Well, said Boner, I hope you did so with tears in your eyes. Is it not the case that people are more prepared to receive a hard word if it comes from a broken heart? Then secondly here, God reveals man's need through his word applied by his spirit. Unless clear communication is accompanied by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, little impact will be made. And as Jonah proclaimed God's righteous judgment, the need of his hearers is being laid bare. It is profoundly unsettling when God's searchlight swings into exposure mode over the dark terrain of our hearts. But did our Lord Jesus not teach his disciples that a major function of the Holy Spirit was to convince their hearers of sin and righteousness and judgment to come? It has been said that the great need of the church today is to recapture our belief that one of the God-appointed functions of the Holy Spirit is to make us know, feel, mourn, loathe, and forsake our sins. By operating in this way, the Holy Spirit begins to refocus our, our priorities. Remember how we uh, commented on the way in which this happened in Jonah's life in the stomach of the great fish. He began to reprioritize his situation. His great danger was no longer the fact that he'd been swallowed by a fish and couldn't get out. He saw his great danger was a spiritual danger, that he, uh, he was distant from God, separated from God, and needed to get back. It is the Spirit of God who works to prioritize the dangers around us. And so in a similar fashion, the Ninevites' uh, thinking is, is channeled to see their spiritual danger as the word of God is preached. God begins to, to fill the horizon of their thinking. And, you know, they can't change channels. You know, if they had a channel changer and pressed all the buttons, the channel isn't changing. It's always God confronting them with the reality of their sin. There's no escape. It's just impossible. Such is the, the overwhelming sense of God's presence. Can't escape it. 
Their hearts were being laid bare before God. The Spirit so often uses God's word as a hammer to smash through the fragile veneers that disguise our true spiritual state and standing before him. This is what I'm like. This is really what I'm like. And when God's word engages with our innermost being in this way and his spirit with irresistible power impresses upon our hearts the holiness of God and our sinfulness, then we become conscious of the fact that God's finger is pointing right at me. In fact, someone has attempted to describe revival in this way. It is God's finger pointing right at me. Wasn't this precisely what the apostles observed during the great spiritual awakening at Pentecost? Peter was just getting into his sermon He had a lot to say. He knew where he was going. He was getting into his sermon when he was interrupted. The veneers of his hearers' hearts were stripped away. And we need to remember that the bulk of his audience were good church-going people. They, they would have thought things are fine between us and God. We're in a good place with God. Until the finger of God pointed deep into their hearts and it caused them to cry out, what must we do to be saved? God had come, you see, in reviving power. His finger was pointing right at them. A spiritual awakening, a revival, is an unusual visitation of God in which a whole community becomes vividly aware of God's immediate and overpowering presence. And that's what happened in Nineveh. They were aware of God's immediate and overpowering presence. And this led to our third thing, a remarkable response. When Jonah preached his message of impending judgment, I wonder what kind of response our bedraggled street preacher expected. Abuse, ridicule, cynicism, violence, imprisonment. Would he be escorted escorted from the streets by men in white coats and incarcerated in the nearest sanatorium? Surely the the religious establishment would at least want to try to neutralize the message and, and denounce it as fake news. Don't listen to him. The religious establishment is never slow 
to mount attacks on anything that undermines the party line. Do you remember how Jeremiah's message of impending judgment upon Jerusalem was treated? A message that had been ridiculed throughout the prophet's ministry. And when it appeared in written form, it was taken, cut up and burned by Jehoiakim, the king, the king of God's covenant people. That was the response of the covenant people to the message of judgment. How did these heathen, wicked Ninevites respond? Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. We don't, believe, we don't read that they believed Jonah, but they believed God. And grasping this, I believe, is critical to our understanding of all that is going on in this passage. Do you remember Paul writing to the Thessalonians and commenting on his reader's response to his gospel preaching writes in this way, you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. Oblivious to the human messenger, they were supremely conscious of the voice of God. And, and that's what caused the spiritual earthquake in their lives. That's what marked Thessalonica out as a site of spiritual awakening. They'd encountered God in the preached word. Interestingly, the word believe in chapter 3 verse 5 belongs to the same family of words from which the word amen comes. So let it be. And so the Ninevites were saying, we agree absolutely with God's estimate. We do indeed deserve judgment. Amen. We agree. We've no defense to marshal. We have no extenuating circumstances to plead. They believe themselves to be guilty as charged. And when God's holy law begins to search our hearts, truly search our hearts, what does Paul say to the Romans? Every mouth is stopped. There's nothing to say. Now notice too the solidarity of the response that was made. Lest some think weak-minded men are easily swayed by rhetoric, the recorded response notice is citywide. Verse 5, the least to the greatest responded from the street sweepers to seasoned generals and high nobility, from the least religious to the most religious. Notice that missing here is the Pharisaic pass the parcel response to the message of judgment. Something we come across in the New Testament. It's a sobering word, but it's not meant for me, it's for you. 
It's, it's, uh, it's for these sinners, these publicans. It's for them. It's not for us. We are not sick. We are spiritually healthy. Everyone in Nineveh took this message to heart. Picture, if you will, the king, the most powerful man in the then known world, humbling himself, stepping down from his throne to exchange his royal robes for sackcloth. What's happening? He is admitting, I have offended another who is greater than I. Not many great kings of that day would acknowledge that anyone was greater than them. Many of them saw themselves to be God kings. Don't challenge me. But here he is pulling on sackcloth, sitting in the dust. Uh, Notice too that his edict in verses 7 to 9 pulls no punches. His people he knew had a reputation for evil and violence and he wants them to to fast and to repent in sackcloth and ashes. A very public way of saying we're in mourning, we grieve over our wicked rebellion against the Most High God. We grieve over that. Now, thirdly, the expectation that is found in their response. I think the genuineness of their contrition and repentance is seen in the hope to which they clung. Verse 9, where they say, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Now that is very illuminating, is it not? The Ninevites do not seek to avert God's judgment by bargaining or by attempting to cut some sort of deal to avert God's judgment. Instead, they acknowledge that God has every right to judge them. And so they throw themselves in God's mercy. It is an amazing response. It wasn't the kind of response that was commonplace in that day. Idolatrous people sought to bargain with their gods, sought to twist their arms, sought to manipulate their gods. But when they come before the Lord of Lords, the only true God, there is no deal to be made. They cast themselves upon his mercy. They grasp that the solution to their condition doesn't rest in their performance. It lies in the very heart and character of God himself. They cling to the only possibility open to them, undeserved mercy. Muslim friends of mine remind me that there are repeated promises in the Quran of the forgiveness of a merciful Allah to those whose merits have been weighed on the scales 
and they pursue that merit at every turn, uh, we can somehow or other earn the mercy of God. We just need to try a little bit harder, do a little bit more. In contrast, the Christian gospel offers good news of mercy to the undeserving. It's to the undeserving. That's why our symbol is a cross and not a set of scales. We don't say to God, look at the scales, see how we've performed. We say we look to the cross and we see how another has performed on our behalf. Our focus is upon divine, not upon human performance. What does the hymn writer say? Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. And the Ninevites grasped that their only hope, their only hope, lay in the mercy of God. It begs the question, what is the hope this evening to which we are clinging when we encounter God as individuals, as a church, as a city, as a nation, when the veneer is stripped away and our hearts are laid bare? What's the hope? to which we cling. God in his mercy leads us to Calvary. It is the focal plane of the gospel where God has at great cost showcased his amazing mercy. You want to see the mercy of God, the amazing mercy of God? Then look to the cross, to the one who poured out his life for us. As we approach the Lord's table this evening, let's focus on the provision of God's mercy. Let's focus upon the God who delights in mercy. Let's think of the God who is eager to bestow his mercy on all who genuinely seek his face. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the God who could awaken the wicked city of Nineveh is the God who can awaken each heart here, the God who can awaken our city afresh, the God who can awaken our land, we have no plea to make, but we can cast ourselves upon your mercy and say with your word in wrath, remember mercy. Seal your word to our minds and to our hearts, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.
We're going to sing now in Christ alone as we prepare to gather round the Lord's table.